This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. The Bible commands us to study and show ourselves approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are new here at 88.7, we do this on Tuesdays for about an hour, and we take people's questions. Maybe there's an issue you're studying in God's word, or you're seeking biblical instruction uh, so you can rightly apply God's truth to some issue in your life. If we can be of help by God's grace, we will do our best. All you need to do is call us. Again, the local number, the 843 exchange is 525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Walter, great to be here today. Let's go ahead and we'll get started. All right, Pastor Carl, good morning. Um, we have a live caller, and we're going to begin with them. Good morning, caller. You are live with Pastor Carl. Hey, good morning. Good to have you good today. Morning, yeah, good morning. What can we do to help, brother? Uh, my name is Tim. I'm from Bridgeport, Connecticut, and um, I was doing a Bible study for Luke 6. Okay. And the Pharisees were getting on Jesus and the disciples for breaking their man-made laws concerning the, concerning the Sabbath. So when I was looking in the Old Testament for the, at the Ten Commandments and what God commanded, it was no rest. But then later on, God told Moses, you can't throw the fire, you can't leave your house under penalty of death. So my question is, weren't everybody breaking the Sabbath law that, that God ordained, or am I confused with something? Well, it's a fair question, so let me see if I can respond. You listen to a radio station there, I suppose, in Connecticut. Is that how you're familiar with us? Yes, WFIF. All right, fantastic. So, um, unfortunately, the Pharisees had taken the sabbatical uh, guidelines that God had given. Here's a major point that we need to see. God himself said that he worked so to speak, in six days, and then he rested one. Obviously, God never gets tired. He's an omnipotent God, but he left us an example, the people of God, that we need to rest. We need to rebuild one day in seven. And so under the Levitical law, it was more stringently regulated than it would be under the new covenant. There are things today that we can do uh, under the covenant of grace that they could not do under the Old Testament. Why? Because some of those aspects of the law were part of God's ceremonial law. Uh, God sometimes distinguished the people of Israel uh, by externals. Why? Because the new covenant had not been enacted. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and with Judah, declares the Lord in Jeremiah 31. And he speaks of how he would put his spirit within people, that they might walk in obedience. And he said this would happen because or for 
their sin or their iniquity would be forgiven. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we are celebrating a new testament, a new diatheke, a new covenant, a new deal, so to speak, that no Old Testament believer knew. And so now the manner in which God distinguishes the people of God is not through externals, but through internals. And so many of the ceremonial laws have been lifted. The moral law of God never changes. And so when we come to the Pharisees, uh, Jesus described them actually even in this uh, same gospel as violating uh, a number of God's principles. I'm just flipping over here to uh, Luke because there's an example in Matthew 11. And uh, he, he says this he, in Luke 16, 16, he said, the law and the prophets, we would today call that the Old Testament or the Tanakh is how the Jewish people would describe their Old Testament. It's obviously not an Old Testament to them, but the Tanakh is kind of an abbreviation for the Torah, the Nephilim, the prophets, and the wisdom literature, the Ketuvim. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. And everyone contextually that he's referring to of course, are the religious leaders of Israel. And very similarly, in Matthew chapter 11, I'm just turning over there quickly, uh, Jesus um, made a, 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 a similar statement. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So putting these two accounts together... In Luke, he makes it very clear the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Why? Because John was the last Old Testament prophet. We find him on the New Testament pages of Scripture. His ministry is prophesied in Isaiah and Malachi, but he's technically a member of the Old Covenant. Why? Because he dies before Christ himself sheds his blood and sends the promise of the Holy Spirit. And that's why um, though there was never a man born of a woman greater than John, the person who's least in the kingdom is greater than he because the least person in the kingdom, so to speak, is born again and dwelt by the Spirit, even though John was one of about 500 people who had a unique and special relationship with the Spirit of God, and his probably the most unique in that he was filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb. With that said, he never became a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a new deal all made available through the death of God's Son. And so this um, aspect of the law was preached until John the Baptist. And then he says here in Matthew 11 and verse 12, very similar to what we just read in Luke 16, 16, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Uh, and so they were trying to force their way into the kingdom of God. They were trying to come based on what they thought was necessary to enter God's kingdom. And one of the principal ways in which they did this was by creating sabbatical laws that went way beyond what God had given in terms of parameters. Uh, for instance, um, you couldn't eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath. You could sell it to a Gentile, but you couldn't eat it yourself. Why? Because the chicken did work. Even today, when you go to Israel amongst the Orthodox people, they rigidly have created all kinds of rules and regulations that really are not found in Scripture. Uh, for instance, um, uh, they do not 
turn on a light switch on the Sabbath. Why? Because to flip the switch is to create a spark. It's to build a fire. It's to be in violation of what God said. And it misses the spirit of the command that Moses had given. Uh, And so they, even to this day, you know, I I bring people to Israel usually about every 18 months, and we have a sold-out trip uh, going in September uh, just a waiting list, but if people are interested in listening, let us know, and we'll give you first priority for the next trip. But with that said, you go into a hotel, you don't want to get on a Sabbath elevator. And if you're on the 20th floor, say, of some high-rise hotel, and you step on the Sabbath elevator, you're not aware of what you're getting into, it's going to stop at every single floor until it reaches the ground floor. Why is that? Because to push the button to say, I want to go to floor four or the lobby or whatever, is to do work. And so it's the same spirit that you find here in Luke chapter 6. And many of those ceremonial laws have been lifted. And the Sabbath was really focused on the nation of Israel. And under the new covenant, there was a transition period. Certainly the apostles would go into the temple. Why? Because they were Jewish, and that's where the Jewish people hung and they wanted to reach the Jewish gospel, the Jewish people with the gospel of Christ. And so Christ had commanded through people like Paul, you go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And he had already established that, though the breadth of the gospel is all nations. There was priority initially given in the limited commission to go to the Jew first. And so that's what they initially did until persecution came and God scattered them, uh, Acts 8, uh, across uh, greater Israel and other places into Gentile regions. And the gospel began to go out in a broader way and eventually to every part of the world. And so what we find here is a form of rigid legalism that the Pharisees exercised. And they were, uh, you know, upset with Jesus because, you know, he healed a man here in Luke 6 with a withered hand. And God says, no, that's an act of compassion. In fact, you're inconsistent. You would, if you had your animal fallen into a ditch, you wouldn't say, well, we got to pull him out. Oh, we can't do it. It's the Sabbath day. We have to wait till tomorrow and let him suffer. They weren't even consistent. And you can't be when you create rules and regulations that really aren't found in Scripture. It's a great question. Let's go to the next one. Uh, Thank you for calling from Connecticut. Uh, Who do we have next? Next, uh, we have an anonymous question out of Savannah, Georgia. They ask, is it okay for a woman to teach a Bible study for high schoolers consisting of both young men and young women? How about college and career groups consisting of of a mixed audience? It's a great question. Um, I don't think it's wise. Uh, Here's why. When you're dealing with, uh, and here's how we do it, by the way, because obviously what is clear in Scripture is women are allowed to teach children. In fact, they're commanded to do that, and women bring a depth of love and sensitivity to children that men don't always have, and they complement us in an incredible way. And women, of course, are commanded to teach other women. Uh, God forbids uh Uh, for a man to be involved in some kind of a discipleship relationship in Titus chapter 2 with a younger woman. No, that that is to happen uh, with women. Women teach women. Now, I can disciple women from the pulpit through the teaching ministry God has entrusted to me, but women are to disciple on a one-on-one, one-on-five, one-on-ten, whatever it is, basis uh, with other women. 
at what point does someone become a man? Well, there may be some cultural um, debate over that. Certainly, God said that those who are 20 and up uh, in the nation of Israel uh, who left Egypt were going to perish in the wilderness. So only those 19 and below were considered um, as potential candidates to walk into the promised land. If you remember the people, because of unbelief, when they heard the report of the spies, uh, Joshua and Caleb gave a favorable report. They said, yeah, what these 10 guys are saying is true, but God is bigger and he promised it and we should go in. And so this generation was disqualified. So some of you might say, well, you know, 19. Well, in our nation, in our culture, if someone's 18, they can fight. But let's just think about it even beyond that. At Community Bible Church, when someone reaches the middle school years, like seventh grade and above, uh, we have women teaching women, men teaching men. Again, our goal is not to see how close we can get to sin, but how far away from it. But practically, practically speaking, if uh, you have girls and boys, uh, especially high schoolers, constantly together, and there's never an opportunity for women to focus on these young women, there's a lot of issues that can't be addressed in a mixed audience. Not to mention, we have found that they tend to be very distracted. Now, do we have opportunities for uh, young teenagers to be together? We had, I was told in staff meeting this morning, 91 who were in the uh, Sunday night uh, youth ministry. And Thursday night, we have a similar group of people. It's mixed. But again, you know, it's healthy for young boys to meet young girls in a formalized context and not the worldly expressions that are happening in churches all across America. And it's sad to say, but in many youth groups, that's where someone loses their virginity. That's where they try alcohol, drugs, and so forth. I'm talking about evangelical church youth groups. And there's no real supervision or standards sometimes when it comes to the leadership. So what you want to communicate as a church early on is that, no, God's order is clear. And what is interesting is that when God's order is violated, it opens the door for all kinds of other gross error that will unfold. And so churches that are egalitarian, before long, they're soft on homosexuality, on transgenderism. It's a slippery slope. And if you look at every major Protestant denomination that has now apostatized from the faith, the first, the first issue that they wavered on was the role of men and women in the church. So I would just say, if you've got these high schoolers, split them up, and if you can't get a man that's telling on your church, listen, I've had people call here the Bible line, and they said, well, we needed someone to teach a adult Sunday school, and none of the men would step up, and so, you know, I, I, I stepped up to the plate, and I'm teaching this mixed group of men and women on Sunday morning. I'm not preaching. Am I in violation? Yes, you are. And what it would take would be a woman who knows her Bible well enough to be able to say, hey, look, if you guys are so impotent that you can't stand up and teach a class, if you're that weak, then we're not going to have a class because we as women are going to obey what God says. And I guarantee there are this homeschool group, there's probably retired men in your church 
or churches, I don't know if this is some umbrella group, where they would gladly come and teach young men so that you could focus on women. So anyway, this is, uh, this is an important question, and I would encourage you to follow God's word uh, if you've not studied through this carefully, because, you know, we just had like this if gathering last weekend. What a gross discredit of the Christian faith. And tens of thousands of women across the country either met physically or in small groups. What a gross misrepresented misrepresentation of truth. And among other things, they're egalitarian. So the door is wide open now in evangelicalism. And when you have people uh, who serve in major leadership positions uh, and they're advocating, oh, my wife can be a pastor and a co-pastor with me and she can preach on Sunday morning or she can preach under my authority. No man has authority to give authority that God expressly denies. Great question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859 if you have a question for today's Bible line. Our next question is out of Ridgeland, South Carolina, and they ask, what is Pastor Carl's opinion on the movie Jesus Revolution? Well, I've not seen the movie yet, but I'm familiar, obviously, with uh, its background with Greg Laurie and so forth. Greg Laurie is a good guy. Um, and from what I have heard, the movie itself is not really fully representative of all that uh, took place in this Christian hippie Lonnie Frisbee's life. Uh, when I was out working in the yard yesterday for two hours, I actually listened to Lonnie Frisbee's brother be interviewed uh, by this group. I think they call themselves Radical Radio. And I thought, man, this is really wacko theology. This is just really um, some bad theology that this guy ascribed to. Uh, Chuck Smith, who was one of the lead finding, founding pastors, really the founding pastor, I suppose you could say, of the Calvary Chapel movement, he even at one point had to say, hey, Lonnie, uh, you, you're off base here. You can't teach in this format. Anyway, the, the guy, I mean, he and his brother were in a terrible race in a terrible home. He was abused uh, physically by another man struggled with homosexuality. Um, he himself, to his credit, would say, no, this is a sin. I don't ascribe to it, but he struggled with it. Look, God's grace is incredible. You know, and again, how much of this, he died of AIDS. He died of AIDS. How much of this, you know, is brought out in the movie, I don't know because I haven't seen it yet. So I don't want to make a judgment on the movie, but I can make a judgment on Lonnie Frisbee's theology, and it was lousy. Does that mean that he didn't have the gospel? I'm not saying that. But he was a part of the um, Rhema mu movement. And, of course, he was instrumental in a John Wimber's movement as well that uh, had some, again, really weird theology. So they, they called themselves a word-spirit church. Um, that means basically, well, we need the Holy Spirit to work. And what does that look like? Well, for Lonnie Frisbee, it meant people were speaking in tongues. It meant people were being slain in the Spirit, passing out. Things that are not even close to being biblical, not even close. And so then the, the rhema, you know, when they say word spirit, they don't mean, well, the Bible plus 
the work of the Holy Spirit. That should be true in every local church where principally we're getting our doctrine and theology from the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit is empowering and anointing the teacher to preach. But the excesses in the extra-biblical manifestations that, again, untaught people, they, oh, wow, this is great. You know, it's just like the if gathering over last weekend. I'm sure thousands of women went and felt good. Well, listen, you may feel good, and people are often not gathering to worship the living God. They're gathering to worship a feeling. They're seeking a feeling. They're worshiping themselves. And you may have felt good, but the theology is lousy. It's poor. It's not representative of historical biblical Christianity. And Lonnie Frisbee's theology, again, I don't know if it came out in the movie, but I heard from his own brother who also wrote three books on his life of which his Lonnie was aware of what was happening even before he died. He spoke into a tape recorder for several hours what became a book. His theology was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Does that mean that God couldn't use someone like that? God can use anyone he wants. God was using Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker while Jim Baker, you know, the founder of PTL, Praise the Lord Ministries, which was huge. It was nationwide. It was worldwide in the 1980s, and he was having, you know, adulterous affairs in hotels. And yet I met people who came to Christ through that ministry, not because of him, but because in spite of him, because the Word of God is alive and living and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Jimmy Swaggart, he's visiting prostitutes, and he'd get up behind the piano and he was Elvis Presley's cousin, and he knew how to entertain an, an audience, and he'd weep, and he'd cry, and he'd have the whole audience moved emotionally, and people came to Christ through that. Is that healthy? No. It's sick. Uh, it's terrible. And so I say all that to say that I haven't seen the movie. Maybe I will. Um, but it, for me to endorse the movie even if they don't give the full story of Lonnie Frisbee. And according to these two men who both knew him well, they didn't tell the whole story on his life. And they carved out sections very carefully. And from what I've heard, it's a very moving movie. And people, oh, this is great. But again, if you give endorsement to a person, you better know what they really believe. Because some people may be easily swayed by the nonsense. You know, you got a Benny Hinn who is doing this, who's doing the same things to this day, except uh, to Lonnie's credit, he was not in it for his for money. Benny Hinn is. He he learned how to take that whole theology and to make himself a multimillionaire from it. Um, so to his credit, Lonnie didn't do that. But he had some bad theology, and even those who mentored him recognized that. But they were excited that he was bringing a lot of the down-and-outers to the church, and they should have been, and he had a way with people to accomplish that. But to put someone in a leadership position who doesn't meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 is very, very dangerous. And I think what I fear could happen, again, I haven't seen the movie, so don't judge me on this. I'm just telling you, but what I fear could happen is that people will end up thinking that the theology of Lonnie Frisbee had the anointing of God on it, and we should embrace it, and we shouldn't. 
Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Our next question is anonymous out of Beaufort, South Carolina, and they ask, are prenuptial agreements biblical? Well, the short answer is no, they are not. And so let me turn to the book of, of Genesis. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Obviously, prenuptial agreements are new in the history of the church. They're not mentioned in the Bible. But what we do know is how God views marriage. And from what God says about marriage, then you would have to conclude that prenuptials are unbiblical. First, when God says here in Genesis uh, what his intention is, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two shall become one, he is intending for marriage to be permanent. That is it, that it is to last as long as both people are alive. And so prenuptial agreements at the start open the door uh, to a potential divorce. If this doesn't work out, uh, I just need a commitment from you that you're not going to touch these assets that I'm bringing, say, into the marriage. So a man leaves his father and mother, he's united to his wife, they become one, which means they should never open a door to consider divorce under any circumstances. I, the God of Israel, Malachi 2, says hates divorce. That's part of God's moral law. And in the same prophet, he says that God never changes. He's immutable. We speak of the immutability of God, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so God allowed divorce, according to Jesus, Uh, because of the hard-heartedness of man. But now we live under a new covenant. And so the only exception that Jesus gave for a divorce was uh, sex during the betrothal period. When a man was considered husband and wife, and unlike engagement, we don't put those terms on an engaged couple. Um, But if during that period of time, one of the members had been unfaithful because the covenant had not been sealed physically, there was an allowance for a divorce. There really is no allowance today. Does that mean that a woman who's being beaten to death or um, you know, her hair is being pulled out or her husband is living in bed with thousands of women or whatever it may be, I know I'm overstating the case, cannot um, separate. She can separate, but 1 Corinthians 7 tells her her options is to, are to remain single or be reconciled to her husband. And Paul prefaces that by saying that what I'm telling you is not original with me, but this is what the Lord said. Where did he say that? He said it by his teaching on divorce and remarriage. Now, people fail. There's forgiveness at the cross, but we don't lower God's standard. And of course, when God gives a description of love, he says it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. So you don't start out by denying that kind of expression of love. Ephesians 5 speaks of a sacrificial love. The man is to give and a respectful love. The woman is to give and that love covers a multiple, multi, multitude of sins, Peter will say in 1 Peter 4.8. So a, a prenup, in essence, is a plan not to forgive. I had a very famous family call me. This was 20 years ago. I will not say their name over the air, but... They are known all across America, among other things, for their incredible generosity that they have shown to the cause of Christ. And this young man called me and said, you know, my, I listen to you on the radio in the state that I'm in, and 
My dad wants me to sign a prenuptial agreement because the assets of our family are in the, I would not be surprised. I don't think this would be an overstatement to say in the hundreds of millions. And what do you think, Pastor Carl? I said, no. Listen, uh, if it means, if you really love this woman, if you really love her, and you want to commit your life to her, and if it means you leaving that incredible family business, then that's what you should do. Now, if your dad decides, well, I'm going to limit the amount of money that I'm going to give you because of what it could mean if she's just marrying you, quote, unquote, for your money, um, which is a struggle that sometimes very wealthy people uh, have to face and they have to be discerning, then that's, that's his business. But he can't control your family. And whatever assets you own, you own together. It's not like, okay, these, this stuff is my half and this stuff is yours and we've got it in a written agreement. The world would say that it would be stupid for a young man like that to sign a prenuptial agreement. But remember, God says in Luke 16, 15, we've already referenced Luke 16 this morning, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And I would just say that with a divorce rate now in America of over 50%, the world would say you're a fool not to sign a just-in-case-we-get-divorced-you-can't-take-my-stuff kind of agreement. But everything in Scripture would mitigate against it. And if you have a son or a daughter that is entering into a marriage relationship and someone is asking this of that son or daughter, you should tell them to run a thousand miles an hour in the opposite direction because you are walking into a potential relationship that is destined for tragedy. You know, I do counseling. Someone wants me to marry them. Uh, minimum six-month time frame. So if someone came today, I can't marry them within six months. Why? Because I want them to be successful. And so there's six one-hour appointments. There's about 18 to 20 hours of homework they have to do. With that said, the very first appointment is the permanency of marriage. And we go through what God says about divorce. And when the disciples understand what the Lord Jesus said about divorce and what God's original intention was, they say, well, Lord, maybe it's better just never to get married. Jesus took it way past the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai in terms of what they taught on divorce, and he spoke of a permanent relationship. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859. Our next question is from Bert out of Guyton, Georgia. He writes, does Dr. Brogy have any concerns about Dallas Jenkins or the Chosen series so far? I haven't noticed anything heretical, just some inferences for dramatic effects, as you would see in Dr. David Jeremiah's Why the Nativity? Well, David Jeremiah's Why the Nativity is very different from Dallas Jenkins' um, so-called you know, artistic license because he's gone way past that. When he puts in the words of Jesus, I am the law of Moses, that's a direct quote out of the Book of Mormon from the book of Nephi. Uh, that's not found in Scripture. And so it's very sloppy, but part of that, I think, is rooted in the fact that he's snuggled up with the Mormon church in this series. And to me, that is very, very foolish. Not to mention the man who plays Jesus in the movie. And this, to me, is the saddest part of it all. He's a committed Roman Catholic. 
and he has gotten literally tens of thousands of people through social media to sign up for the Roman Catholic prayer app. And that's dangerous. Listen, the Roman Catholic Church is an apostate church. They deny justification by grace alone through faith alone. They deny the biblical principle of sola scriptura, that the scripture is the final authority on all issues of truth and morality. And again, you have a pope, too, who's wavering. He signed a document in November of 2022 that basically said you cannot say that Jesus is the only way to God. He denies that by signing it. He has gotten now very squishy on the issues of homosexuality. He's an apostate pope. He's lost. And if you've read his theology, he does not understand or believe or embrace as a Jesuit. I studied under the largest community of Jesuits in the world at Boston College, where I did my undergraduate work. And uh, with the exception of one, I only met one who was born again. Uh, They were lost. And not only are they lost, they're incredibly liberal. And this pope, of course, is the first Jesuit ever to serve as a pope. And I believe he is probably paving the way for the next man who will take his place. And that he just assigned a few months ago 21 new cardinals who think like he does. And so I don't think we've seen anything yet. He wants to ensure that the next pope is going to be, if anything, more liberal than it's ever been. So, um, look, when I first started watching season one, ah, this is good, you know, this is great. And and then I saw one, I can't remember, I've only seen a few of the things in season two, and they have um, the tax collector, Matthew, one of the apostles, giving Jesus instruction on how to present the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, I think you should say it this way. That, that's just pure, unmitigated nonsense. Not to mention they have a guy who's like a space shot, you know, playing Matthew. Uh, these were men's men that played uh, the roles, that played, that served the roles of an apostle. So there's a lot of uh, problems with it. And again, my biggest concern is that the lead actor is leading people into Roman Catholicism. And that, to me, is very, very dangerous because that's an apostate church. Let's go to the next question. Our next question comes from Rebecca out of Chicago, Illinois. She writes, Dr. Brogy, in my recent studies, I've encountered many Christians who have a differing view or no view at all on eschatology. I realize you have been covering this in your current series on God's prophetic schedule. And I understand it's important to know God's future plan for Israel for us. So when having conversations with other believers on end times, how would you go about this conversation? I have encountered some Presbyterians, for example, who seem to love God and even exhibit fruit. I have also seen a difference in classical premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism I guess it is hard for me to discern when to stand firm on an issue as I want to honor God's word and when it is sat or or when it is said to be a secondary tertiary issue. Thank you for your time as I am seeking to understand how to learn to engage in conversation and better articulate the biblical worldview. Well, what's unfortunate today, Rebecca, is that so many people today who attend seminary They're not taught eschatology. They basically say, well, you know, you can be whatever you want, pre-mill, 
amillennial, post-millennial, and they would say, you know, it all pans out in the end, and they make these clever little jokes. And, and actually, when they do that, they do a great disservice to the body of Christ. Amillennialism, its roots came out of Augustine. And Augustine sadly made some very ugly statements about the Jewish people. And when I bring people to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum, so to speak, uh, in, in Jerusalem, the very first unit of display that you go to is on Augustine and his hateful anti-Semitic statements that he made. And of course, he was of the belief that God was done with the Jewish people and therefore, because God was finished with the Jewish people, that they uh, have now been replaced by the church, the body of Christ. And that's sad, because that's not true. Uh, when God uh, spoke uh, to his commitment to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, when he gives the new covenant, he makes a very, very pointed statement. And he speaks of this day that's coming. It hasn't been fulfilled for the most part in Israel except amongst believing Jews. But remember, he came to his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Uh, so overall, the people of Israel rejected Jesus as Lord and Savior. Um, and so after he speaks of this new covenant that's going to be fulfilled during the time of Jacob's trouble, what we would call under New Testament theology, the great tribulation period, uh, we learn this. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord, or Yahweh, of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, namely the moon, the stars, the sun, so forth. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, they can't, and the foundations of the earth searched out below, they cannot, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. And so God's commitment to Israel is not a um, love that's soft. It's an unfailing love. It's a committal love that is not going to change, and he is going to complete the promises that he made to the Jewish people. So Augustine introduced what we would call uh, replacement theology, that God had replaced Israel with the church. And you have a number of reformers, of course, who are saved out of Roman Catholicism. And because they're saved out of Catholicism, uh, they basically take the replacement theology of the church and they just put a different spin on it. So you meet Presbyterian brothers. Okay, look, I, I, I love my Presbyterian brothers who are born again. Now, even the PCA, admittedly, right now, is in a great struggle to hold their heads up and to be committed to truth. They have been a part of the Revoice movement which is um, affirming same-sex attraction Christianity, which again is wrong. You cannot say I'm born again and I can have feelings towards someone of the same sex. In fact, I can embrace these feelings and even in some level um, touch a person of the same sex 
in an affectionate way without going all the way, without being careful here. We have many children listening. Um, look, that, that's, that's wrong. That's just wrong. And the Presbyterian Church should not have said, we're going to study this. What they should have said is, we're going to openly right now reject this as absolute heresy and falsity. There was nothing to study. Uh, God's word is clear on these issues. And so we should uh, not back down. Uh, we should not uh, give up for a second in terms of what Scripture says. And when you have now even the Southern Baptist Convention, people who are vacillating like J.D. Greer, you know, to me what he did was a tremendous disservice to Southern Baptists. It was absolutely disgusting where he softened what God says about this issue of sin. And so you have the Protestant reformers who come out of Catholicism, and they adopt a number of aspects of their theology with a different meaning to it. So Calvin and Luther both taught a sacramental view of infant baptism. They held on to infant baptism, and it was sacramental. Historically, biblically, there's no such thing as a sacrament that somehow instills grace. When they use the word sacrament, Calvin and Luther, and for that matter, if you read the 39 articles of faith, which represent the beliefs of the Anglican church, they are sacramental. These are not sacraments. These are not somehow infusing you with grace. Now, certainly whenever we obey God and we submit ourselves in humility, he gives grace to the humble. And so when we participate obediently in the Lord's table and we don't blow it off, yes, um, you experience grace in that level, but that's not what they mean when they describe things like baptism or the Lord's table. They have infused teaching into it that's not found in the Bible. It's found in Catholicism, but they put a different spin on it. And so while the Roman Catholic Church says, for instance, baptism is a sacrament that washes away original sin and instills salvation to the soul, they didn't preach that. But they did preach, oh, but God can awaken a dead soul and give them prevenient grace, pre-salvation grace, so that later they will believe. Again, that's a stretch. That's not what the Scripture teaches, not to mention in Scripture, baptism always follows conversion. So um, with that said, there is a sense in which there are issues that you hold on with a tight fist. You cannot compromise on the deity of Christ, on the substitutionary atonement, on the doctrine of the Trinity, of the physical, literal resurrection of Christ from the grave, of his physical, literal return from heaven. You cannot fellowship with someone who denies those basic truths, the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Scripture. And you need to be careful because there are denominations now who say they believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. But in my course in bibliology, I go through five views on inerrancy. I go through ten views on inspiration. And they mean something entirely different from what Jesus taught concerning the infallibility of Scripture. So you have to be careful because people can use the language of historical Christianity and put different definitions to it. So if someone holds to the non-negotiables, fellowship with them, love them in the Lord. And you can hold with an open hand in terms of fellowshipping, but understand somebody is right, somebody's wrong. Infant baptism and post-conversion baptism both cannot be right. 
And I don't think it's by accident that over 90% of what we would call born-again Christians, some would put it as high, some missiologists at 95%, do not practice infant baptism. They practice post-conversion baptism. I've been to some countries of the world, and they say, where, where do they get this infant baptism thing from? Again, they get it out of Catholicism. They're just putting a different spin on it. Uh, with that said, it's important that on, we understand somebody is right. God is either done and finished with Israel or he's not. And I would say he's not. I just read to you a passage from Jeremiah 31, and God said if you can, you know, basically say that the stars and the sun and the moon are, 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 are going to be done away with, or if you can measure the heavens above or the earth below, and then I'll be done with You can't. God has made an eternal commitment to Israel, and that's the theme of Romans 9, 10, and 11. He finishes chapter 8 with the unfailing love of God that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And the logical thinking person would say, well, God, but you said you love the Jewish people with an everlasting love. It seems like maybe you really didn't. And so Paul then goes on and he continues this argument of everlasting love in 9, 10, and 11. It's not a parenthesis in the book of Romans as many Presbyterians would posit it. It would be if you think you're done with Israel and you read those portions of Scripture through that theological lens that the church has replaced Israel. But if you just take it at face value, you give it to a new Christian, say, read these three chapters and try to summarize in one word what you think these three chapters are about. They're going to say Israel because that's the theme. Chapter 9, Israel's election. Chapter 10, Israel's rejection. Chapter 11, Israel's future restoration. And so God's not done with the Jew. Even Charles Hodge, who was a, you know, amillennial Presbyterian, recognized there has to be some future for Israel in his systematic theology. That's something most in the amillennial Presbyterian realm would not admit. So, look, somebody's right, somebody's wrong. And it's the wrongness of amillennialism that would be embraced by typical Presbyterians, the Anglican Church, and and some in the Reformed faith, it is that error that has put the church to sleep. And they are looking for something that is not going to happen. And God's people need to wake up. God is setting the stage for the return of his son. Our eyes should be wide open. But again, the prophetic portions of Scripture, they can hardly even teach because they don't know what to do with them because of their lack of training in this area. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. Our next question is from Alberto, who is live with us. Good morning, Alberto. You're live with Pastor Carl. Well, good morning, gentlemen. My question is, I was a Christian, accepted Christ, and he really believes he's a Christian, and he preaches the gospel and all that, witnesses, but you mentioned in your eternal security back to the basics, that some people could be say, well, they're pseudo-Christians, they're not really, they're not really Christians, or other Christians accuse him of not being a Christian, but the moment that Christian sins, suddenly that Christian is being attacked by the world and mocked by the world, but yet the, the, one, the other Christians that everybody thinks he was a Christian, who smokes and drinks, they're not attacked by the world because the world's so comfortable around them, yet uh, the, one who, the one who really believes who is a Christian is attacked by the Christians and by the world. So how do you deal with that situation? Well, it's a good question. Again, you know, if he is of us, he'll remain with us. 
the fact that they went out from us shows that they were not really of us to begin with. And Satan is a great deceiver. When Dr. Billy Graham was first starting his ministry, uh, there was a mirror evangelist. His name was Charles Templeton. And Charles Templeton had a passionate presentation of the gospel. And, of course, uh, they both were involved in Youth for Christ International. They both came out of that movement. But Templeton began to struggle in doubt over the authority of Scripture. And Billy Graham, as he tells his story in his book, Just As I Am, says, you know, I got out in a field and I put my Bible before the Lord and said, God, I, I don't understand it all. I know there are all these theologians who are a lot smarter than I am, and they say it's not all true, and I don't understand their arguments, but I believe it's your word, and I just want you to know that I am committed until God gives me my last breath to preach it. Templeton went with the way of liberalism, and again, you know, he was a passionate preacher, eventually became an agnostic, and he caused a, a huge backlash uh, uh, of people who embraced his false theology. And now, to his credit, Dr. Graham, even uh, while Templeton was an agnostic, he remained friends with him, but obviously they grew apart in terms of any kind of ministry. Dr. Graham wanted to win him to Jesus. So there are many people... And this is the devil's strategy, because what he wants to do is discredit the Christian faith, and one of the best ways to do it are through fakes in the ministry, people who really don't know the Lord. And that's why Jesus made it very clear to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but on the inside, what are they? Ravenous wolves. As you said, Alberto, you know them by their fruits. Grapes aren't gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles. Are they? Obviously not. So every good tree bears good fruit. And so the scripture speaks of perseverance. And perseverance is one inevitable fruit of genuine conversion. And so Jesus finishes this great sermon by saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not preach or prophesy in your name, and your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And what I'm always fascinated by is that Jesus doesn't go for some kind of ho-hum testimony. He goes for the most dramatic testimony one could think of to drive home his point, because today we'd say, oh, look, this person cast out demons. This person prophesied in their name. And again, this is a concern I have with this new movie and the person that it's linked to, because these are the very things that this man did. God knows his heart, and I hope he knew and loved Christ, but he had some terribly gross, errant theology. And of course, um, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name, we did miracles in your name, and today we'd say, well, that's a spirit-anointed ministry that we need to follow and hold to. And Jesus said that I will declare to them, I never knew you, not I once knew you, but I never knew you. Remember, the essence of eternal life is defined by Jesus in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom thou hast sent. 
I never knew you. And again, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So we're not talking about perfection, but we are talking about direction. And if the direction of a person's life in the end denies Christ, it means they never embraced him. And that's the candidate that the evil one is looking for because that brings great discredit to the cause of Christ. Um, So we're just about out of time here today, but we're glad that you could join us here for the Bible line. And uh, do we have any time for any more questions or? I think we can get one more quick question, Pastor Carl. Um, Are you familiar with uh, the Mac McMillan ministry and what are your thoughts? Yeah, so he's an interesting fella. You know, he's a brother in Christ. Someone asked me to review a sermon he did, and I guess he goes for like these walks and um, as he's walking through his neighborhood or whatever, he addresses an issue, and I thought he did a horrendous job on eschatological end times issue. It was based more on feeling, based more on what he thought and what his opinion was versus sound exegetical decisions. That's not to say that he's all bad. I think he's helped a lot of people. Um, but that's about as much as I know about him, so it would not be fair for me to give a firm evaluation, except I was very disappointed because this guy obviously has some kind of platform, and he's selling a lot of books, uh, at least for that one walk that he made where he's addressing the pre-tribulational rapture is false. And, And I'm not mad at him because he differs with me, but what I saw among other things is how sloppy he was in the conclusions that he came to. And if that's typical of how he's making decisions, then that's not good. But again, that's all I know of him, so that's about as far as I can comment. But, you know, you're welcome to ask these questions, and I'll do my best to respond by God's grace. Thank you for being with us today on the Bible Line. And if you do have a question, you can send it to tbl at wagp.net or go to searchthescriptures.org, and there's a drop-down menu, Ask Dr. Brogy a Question, and when we answer it, We will shoot you an email so that if you're not here live to listen to your answer, you'll know it's been answered. God bless you as you walk with Christ. 